Hello listeners and welcome back to our season finale on healthcare. Let me set the context for today's podcast which is on the future of healthcare and various issues as to how healthcare will pan out in the future including building trust in the consumer. In one of my board meetings we discussed on how and why consumers trust on healthcare is declining and waning away. Consumers have started believing on the internet and social media as a credible source for assessing their healthcare needs. We have seen fake inf- information and curbing or banning of healthcare and life sciences experts during the lockdown to create a narrative or perspective on covid and vaccine in fact i had written a blog on who is twitter to adjudicate life sciences opinion when dr robert malone who is the father of mrna vaccines on which technology several vaccines such as pfizer moderna etc were developed does twitter know how an mrna technology vaccine is developed and how can they actually verify and justify the banning of dr robert malone on the other hand recently we are witnessing the re- emergence of covid and complete lockdowns and increasing public rage and demonstrations in various parts of china the news that is coming out of china on various channels is that china was the first to release its covid vaccine and announced the victory over covid by celebrations in wuhan is now the culprit to distribute to over 150 countries as part of their vaccine diplomacy their covid vaccine which is not only ineffective for their own people but for several people across the world now it has approved oral covid tablets from a multinational pharma company to treat people which is also now out of stock we are also hearing that indian covid vaccines are being purchased by China in the international markets on a premium part of the mistrust of people in healthcare is emerging out of covid and their concern as to are healthcare solutions really safe and can they be trusted coming closer home as part of the report of federation of indian chamber of commerce and industry fiki in 2019 61% of the people were of the view that hospitals did not take the best decision in favor of the patients compared to 37% in 2016 now the reasons are very varied these include lack of responsiveness of hospitals excessive waiting time for patients and low concern for their feedback as to the reasons for the widening of the trust deficit into healthcare providers this is pre covid now you can understand how the industry is working towards rebuilding the trust in the consumers or is it the same before covid to discuss all these issues i have invited dr amira shah my fellow healthcare industry veteran and the promoter of metropolis health a reputed chain of pathology labs with a loyal customer base across india she is a global thought leader in healthcare industry and has played an instrumental role in changing the diagnostic industry landscape in this country from a doctor led practice to a professional corporate group in an extremely unregulated and competitive and fragmented market amiria faced the challenge across many spheres social financial familial and corporate to take metropolis to a leading brand in this country the reason i have called on amira is that she has provided extensive support to fight covid in our country and has conducted over half a million 
RT-PCR test in our country. She understands how COVID has been diagnosed for millions and millions of people and also understands what the future entails. Let me briefly talk about Amira. I have known her for over two decades where she has built Metropolis right from scratch and has taken Metropolis to its current height. She has not only managed the investors and the stock market where she listed the company on the Indian stock market in 2019 and within three years of the listing, the company had a position in international and domestic investors by posting growth performance quarter on quarter for the investor. I've known Amira to be a person with very high integrity, which she has put in not only in her personal life, but has driven these values in her corporate governance, business ethics, and above all, in the industry as well. Being a woman leader and a very successful one in our healthcare industry, she has won several awards from different agencies and industry bodies. She's one of the three women to ever receive an award as the Healthcare Entrepreneur of the Year and one of the youngest to receive from Anson Young. And she has been listed as Asia's Power Businesswoman 2020 by Forbes Asia, 50 Most Powerful Women in Business by Forbes Fortune India for several years. She has been bestowed several awards for her outstanding performance and excellence in diagnostic business and her business acumen and entrepreneurship. Amira and I had worked on several industry bodies, including FIKI, CII, and NatHealth. Currently, she is serving as the Vice President of NatHealth, Healthcare Federation of India. Amira also works on several boards as an independent director, such as Marico, Kaya in the past, Torrent Pharma, Shopper Stop, ACC, which is now part of Adani Group. And she is an advisor to Baylor College of Medicine, Texas, and also on the advisory board of AXA, a Paris headquartered fund which has over $700 billion under management. Amira has received a degree in finance from the University of Texas, Austin, and is also an alum of Harvard Business School. With so much of understanding and depth of healthcare, which Amira brings, along with the ingenuity of her business acumen, it is an honor to have Amira on our podcast today to discuss various issues relating to the future of healthcare and how do we rebuild the narrative in our consumers for the healthcare. So welcome to our podcast today, quote unquote, with KK Amira. Pleasure to have you on our podcast. Happy to be here. Amira, your story has and your journey has been very inspiring, not just to people in healthcare, but as a woman leader as well. And I'm sure you shared a few things on a one-on-one basis as well with me a couple of years back. I would love to get that out from you. It's a very inspiring thought that you had shared, what you've gone through building your business and what you have done to be an industry leader. I would like you to share and set the context of who you are and how you have reached here. It's an inspiring thought to start with. That's, that's very kind of you, Kapil. You know, I grew up obviously in, in Bombay as a middle class to upper middle class kid with parents who are docs. And my grandfather was a GP. And, you know, he and my father used to live in Khetwadi in Bombay in a 200 square foot uh, choy. That's how my father and his brother grew up there. But my grandfather always had a lot of ambition for what he wanted his kids to do and really worked very hard to send them to good schools and get them a good education, etc. And my father landed up in Sindhya school. 
and which was a boarding school in Gwalior. And I think that was a huge inspiration for him to watch all these kids come from, you know, Maharaja family or what he used to call big families and everything is there for them. And he was this young kid who didn't have much but had sort of big desires. So I think I've grown up hearing these stories, you know, from my parents of both being ambitious. And when I say ambitious, not in a bad way, but in a way of, of wanting to make a mark for themselves in, in, in the world and, you know, feeling, wanting to feel uh, like they actually impacted things. And I think the aspiration came from different places. Uh, for my mother, it came a lot from the impact she could make on people around her and patients. And for my father, it came from being recognized or being validated by the world as, okay, somebody who is able to build something. I think for me, the two, three values that I took away very early was one that personally, you know, pursuit of excellence is far more important than the pursuit of money. There was never any conversation about money in the house. There was no conversation about buying XYZ or, you know, going for this holiday or going and buying this fancy car. The conversations were always about how we can be better, you know, how the lab can be better, how the care can be better. And I think for me, that's something very early that money comes when you pursue being damn good at what you do. And but if you start pursuing money, then the road to get there is not always one you're proud of. I think the second value that sort of came very early was to be sort of very straightforward and honest in whatever you do. That, you know, there is only one way to build anything in life, whether it's relationships, whether it's business, whether it's family, is to be very straightforward and to be to be good, not cheat, not fraud, not bribe, not, you know, do any of those and to do things the right way. Because in our, in the family's mind, respect and respectability was always more important than being rich or being seen as very well. So I think there was always that pursuit of respectability, I would say, and therefore things had to be done in the right way. And in a way that we could all sleep at. And I would say the third thing uh, that was a big lesson was about financial independence. And that came directly from my mom, always talking about how how as women, we had to be very, very independent financially and take care of ourselves and be capable enough to be one intellectually challenged always, you know, and while we may pursue other things in our lives, whether we choose to get married, have children or not, but the intellectual challenge, the intellectual pursuit was very important and that should result in financial you know, independence. I would say these three are the biggest values and lessons that I remember growing up with, with my parents very nicely while they told us stories and they repeated some of these things, but they actually lived them every and that was the real learning lesson was that you're not just hearing preaching but you're actually watching your parents living these out on a daily basis um, so to me that was really the first inspiration just for the audience information Ketwadi is in South Bombay I also happen to be a close neighbor I used to live in Lamington Road Navjivan Society so we have had humble beginnings and I guess a lot of healthcare entrepreneurs have come out from that area something about the DNA and water of that area I guess but Amira one thing that that struck me whenever I've been meeting you and talking to you is the way you openly and candidly talk to people like us and very openly talk about your struggles and your ideas and how you have been able to create a team of people from the very beginning who have been able to work with you and accept you as a leader as well. And that leadership challenge that you took early on in your life is something I would love to get you to also share with a lot of women leaders. I guess that should echo a lot with our women listeners as well. How you've gone about building Metropolis and then further on your struggles with the investor and how they accepted you as well. I think 
think a couple even when I was a kid, honestly, when I was in school, you know, I think leadership came to me naturally because I think for me, leadership was about being decisive. You know, when people were discussing, 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 it was often me that stepped in and said, okay, now we've all discussed, let's take a call and move forward. It was also about nurturing your constituents. It was about nurturing and carrying people along. So democracy is good, but at some point, decisions have to be made. But doing things in the interest of the larger group is actually, to me, is what leadership stands for. It's not about doing only what I want to do for myself, but it's about what the group desires. Um, and I really enjoyed the process of building individual equations and relationships that then allowed for, you know, all of us to sort of make decisions together. So I think that trait was there from an early age. And honestly, look, I think one thing which I grew up with, which was, again, credit to my parents and a lot to my dad, was there was never any pressure to conform. You know, I didn't, I mean, nobody in my family gave two hoops about society, what they said, what they think I should do, how I should behave, who I should get married to, when I should have children. You know, honestly, my parents never talked about lo kya kahenge, ye karna chahiye, never. The conversation was always about you do what you think is right. And, you know, even if you make mistakes and mess up in life, we are right behind you. And that's fine. That's okay. The conversation was never about it. And what that did was it built a confidence inherently that when you are in your closest people to you in the world, your parents are right behind you, you know, then you do good, you do bad, uh, it's okay. and you learn from it and you'll move on. And therefore, the confidence to always say that I don't need everybody to accept me. I accept myself. And there's always an ability to, to learn, to take feedback, to take criticism and to make myself better. I'm not at all close to that. But do I need to change myself to be who anybody else wants me to be? Uh, the answer is no. So investors who come and invest in my company and who want to make money of my back and my hard work are most welcome and I will make them lots of money. But they should not be under any illusion as to who I am. And they have to, if they are comfortable working with me, they can come on board. If they're not comfortable working on me, that's fine. We can be friends and maybe in another life. Well put, Amira. And I want to shift gears, set the context for today's podcast, which is about the whole mistrust in healthcare and how it has been increasing and escalating. So first thing I would love to get from you is, is the world done with the facing the threat of coronavirus? Or are we still going to see a few more waves coming in, like what China is now going through? No, I look up. At least my opinion that is that I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to have mutation you know, of this virus. The virus needs to survive. The virus needs to thrive. And the only way for the virus to survive is to keep mutating and evolving. I wouldn't be surprised if that continues to happen. Are our vaccinations strong enough to kill any fundamental new mutations? I don't know. I think time will tell. But what I do know and what I think is an incredible accomplishment of the world that we saw during COVID was the time that it normally took to develop vaccines, to develop, you know, treatment protocols, to get to do things. I mean, science and the healthcare industry really galvanized and I think the kind of funding that came in to really move quickly and to me that was a fantastic global collaboration effort it could always be better but I think we really showed ourselves as human as humankind that you know if we do have a threat to survival we can you know get our stuff together and actually work together as teams rather than what we normally do which is constantly fight and create interdivision so if we do have more mutations I'm pretty sure that this time too humankind will come together to beat excellent a lot of people have talked a lot of things and issues including our industry bodies for healthcare and where you are also 
part of i want to understand from you what are the lessons that the healthcare industry has learned from the covid pandemic and how will covid or has covid shaped and changed the future of healthcare whether it is the trust whether it is the risk of innovations mental health well being communication fake news social media issues and many other issues that we have been talking in our industry circles i think definitely i think healthcare is changing in many ways i think we've seen that neither private healthcare nor public healthcare can manage these situations on their own and deeper collaboration is required between both in all countries we may again there may be fighting and in divisions that happen all year through but when it comes to epidemics we need each other and if we could actually get our stuff together and actually work together the rest of the year patients would be far better off so that's definitely one i would say again the ability like i said to scale quickly and to be able to do innovation quickly i think is a learning lesson and what it really tells you is that if the threat is clear and there is intent and there is funding lots can happen in a short and i think the biggest issue really is that funding is not always in the direction of global priority and often funding happens based on individual emotions individual agendas pharma companies who sometimes funded medical devices companies who funded trying to push their own product how do we get you know is the un can they can the who play a role can you know other group play play a role where we can say global priorities and we can actually start moving more funding towards that you know i was at a speech a few days ago in talking about the future of healthcare actually on saturday and there was another gentleman there who was a, you know came a very young doctor from denmark and his prediction was that if you look at the last 50 years the biggest infection the biggest things that killed people were infectious diseases right gastrointestinal right. disease malaria etc right all the things that we couldn't control and with antibiotics and with better treatment we were able to control that and the current biggest killers are cancer and heart Correct. and his prediction is that the biggest killers of the, after 2030 is going to be brain disease mm-hmm. because science and innovation will find a way to solve the aging problem where our physical bodies will be able to survive longer but our brains are going to have quite a lot of intense stress on them for various reasons and our brains may or may not be able. and today the question really is knowing this or even if you assume this is true how much funding is going towards alzheimer's and dementia and parkinson's comparative and i think the answer to that question is not that fulfilled that we feel comfortable that by the time we get there we're going to have answers to these questions so i think linking global priorities funding is so neurosciences is an area where innovation needs to come in very quickly you mentioned about cardiovascular diseases as a current increased risk i wanted to bring up an issue that has been in the circles about the side effects of our covid vaccine especially in the younger cohort of population where there is now increased risk of cardiovascular diseases and diabetes and we are, see, are we going to see a huge epidemic of diabetes and cardiovascular diseases in this younger population as they grow older and do we need to prepare a health infrastructure quickly given this risk that is emanating from the covid virus correct so i've gotten sick um, you know my kid who got covid is just keeps falling sick every few weeks right so immunity is definitely fallen and along with that along with immunity having fallen that while there's a group of people who genuinely care for what they put in their body with the ad, with the consumerization of food tech and the consumerization of us being at home and eating out etc the stuff that we put in our body is really really bad for us and in is that going to directly link to higher ncds for sure india has unfortunately already got these gold medals of diabetes capital of the world and and heart i think being number 2 as well if not right. number 1 and these gold medals are unfortunately only going to grow so that is a very scary situation because our health infrastructure doesn't keep up with it the number of doctors we have doesn't keep up with it and in rural india where food consumerization is spreading as well 
at least in smaller towns, not rural right. India. Uh, again, we don't even have the primary care facilities necessarily to diagnose NCDs on an ongoing basis. So we definitely as a country need to ramp up in anticipation of this being a huge challenge. So the future, obviously, the risk for healthcare is to develop this infrastructure, given that we may see this pandemic of non-communicable diseases happening before neuroscience disorders could probably take its own toll on the people. Yeah, but today we don't even frankly have ways to diagnose neuroscience is completely perfect. Correct. The Google perfect test for Alzheimer. Correct. Right. And hopefully in the next 10 will change, you know, but in the next 10 years, the numbers have brain disease eventually is going to go. Correct. I wanted to bring up a very critical issue here. You know, you talked about consumerism, but there's also a lot of what you talked about, the food tech and the changing lifestyle because people were locked at home for two years or more. How do you see the lifestyle patterns changing in India and across the world? People don't want to go to offices. I feel my own dad doesn't want to go for walks now. He's slowing down. Before COVID, he used to go daily walks in the morning and evening and, you know, used to meet with his friends and his social circle. Now he doesn't want to go out. He's now happy being at home. And so COVID has changed a lot of lifestyle patterns of people across the world. I also saw that in happening in kids. Kids who were in preschool also have lost their stamina. If you want them to run a 100 meter race, they're not able to run also. I mean, we are seeing these sort of things with the two years of our lockdown and COVID has drastically changed. How do you see the future of this generation, both the old generation as well as the both the you end of our cohorts, really adapting to the future and where do we need to really build for healthcare? There's one more thing that's happening, Kapil, is I'm seeing humongous amount of self-diagnosis and treatment at home. You know, during COVID, people got very used to saying, Kare, you know, government ke paas jana hai, private lab jana hai, because who knows, somebody will know I've got COVID and then my building will be shut down or I can't travel or whatever. And so there started this whole thing about self-diagnosis and treatment where people said, look, I'll just do it now. Every time I've got a cough, cold fever now, the first thing people do is do a COVID rapid antigen. And when that comes negative, because most of them do, we know the technology is not, you know, 100% right. accurate. Perfect. People feel, oh, okay, okay, so this will, this will pass. And three days, four days, 10 days, two weeks, coughs go on, a fever goes on, and we live with it, right? And we are not realizing that as we live with it, what it's doing inside our body, the infection continues to stay there. And it does continue to slow us down. It continues to damage our body. We keep taking medication that impacts with side effects, it impacts our organs. You know, we haven't come to the stage yet where you're taking medicines with nanorobots, uh, nanobots in it that's going straight to your organ, right? You're still taking medicines that impacts everything. So right. I'm actually of the, the midterm impact of what we are currently doing to our bodies. And what that tells me is going to happen is we're going to land up with some severe chronic infections over a long period of time. And that's going to really overall reduce immunity. And that means we'll pick up more infections. That means we're going to be quite a sick nation for a mm. while. So this is for me a big point of concern. But overall, all the changes that have happened in COVID, look, I think human behavior, we always over, we react extremely, right? So when COVID happened, we had no choice. We had to react to one extreme of staying indoors and no walking and all of that. And now that we're sort of released from our prisons, everybody's going mad, wanting to travel and shop and, and eat. Um, and we'll find our balance I think you know I think we usually do and and hopefully when we find that balance we are conscious of what we lost during COVID and we are conscious of how to gain some of that how when we come to our balance how do we regain our good health how do we regain better eating habits how do we regain socializing and building connection and community because a human connection is the thing that keeps us alive so hopefully we get you mentioned about the trust and self-medication and not going to the private or the public healthcare system in our country and that's something that has been talked about not just in boardrooms where I have been part of and 
also on, on different forums. And how do you think that the healthcare industry needs to now go and talk to the consumers that, you know, you can trust on us. You don't need to do what you need to do to harm yourself. Bring that sense of authenticity, empathy, communication, and change the way the things have gone from bad to worse in terms of consumer trusting the healthcare industry. Where do you think we need to start and how the future will we need to go back in building trust into healthcare institutions and bodies? even WHO for that matter. Trust me, I think one, the trust deficit is happening because healthcare industry itself is not always fully transparent about everything we do. We like to keep things a little bit mysterious, a little bit non-transparent because we ourselves don't always have clarity on things we are doing. And that information asymmetry, the technical medical information asymmetry actually is what then used to be the cause of trust where patients used to feel, look, I have to trust my doctor blindly because I don't understand it. So now, where consumers are empowered with information about everything else and now that not understanding it is actually becoming a source of doubt because then they're like but how do I know you know and how do I know it's correct and not being able to have my doctor explain it to me in simple English that helps me understand it and if my doctor is not willing to or my health provider is not willing to that creates a a seed of doubt in me so I think part of it is what we are doing as an industry we have to change our way and we have to become far more transparent we need to tell people what happens under the magic cloth. We need to tell them how things function well, where we have made mistakes. That is on us. Even pricing needs to be more. You know, today you go into a hospital, you have no idea what bill you're going to come out with, right? Uh, and that leads to my second point is that anecdotal example of where patients have gone and been brutally overcharged, intentionally or unintentionally. And those stories in the media uh, have really caused a lot of damage to the healthcare industry. You know, it is fair that any person should have a right to know what something is going to cost them. And it's not un- unfair to tell a hospital that look, I need a range. Give me a range of this much to this much that my my treatment is going to cost me. And we all understand that complications happen, things go wrong. But then when things go wrong, it is the hospital, should be the hospital's job also to go back and say, hey, I'm now estimating this much additional cost. I mean, this happens with lawyers, right? When we hire lawyers and they give us an indicative spend. And then suddenly when you get the bill, it's like five times what the indicative spend was. We get angry, right? Because you're like, hey, at least let me know. So I think that is on us. Second, the anecdotal stories that patients believe and believe is therefore true for everything in healthcare is not fair on health. Because the reality is in 90, 95% of cases, healthcare industry is doing their best. You know, they genuinely are with people of good intent, not so good intent. There will always, nothing is going to be perfect. And those slip-ups can highlight. And that causes. And the third, we also have to remember that not everybody has the same agenda of wanting that. There are many, you know, people in the country for various reasons who want there to be mistrust between patients and the healthcare industry. And those seeds of mistrust are often sowed by them through articles, through wrong examples, or sometimes right, and actually making it much bigger. Than. And the only way to solve this problem when somebody else is trying to mess up the relationship is to engage more, to communicate more, to communicate more transparently. I think if we do that, we can rebuild. I mean, I take one example, you know, social media. Now, even on Instagram, there are about 10 startups which claim that they have reverse diabetes. Of, all right. One talks about, uh, and they give some testimonial of some guy we don't even know. Okay, he's got cured with diabetes. That's one diet. The other guy is talking about some lifestyle change. Now, these sort of startups that have mushroomed in India, which are using social media, blasting ads after ads on social media, 
YouTube and Facebook and they tend to confuse the patient and they are actually trying to acquire naive people or tell them that diabetes is reversible and here are our testimonials this is a guy who got cured and blah 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 that itself needs to be regulated now I believe okay. otherwise we have these sort of fly by night operators mushrooming and doing this online stuff consultations and whatnot pleasing the people and the trust or trust deficit on healthcare would grow even further. How do you think this needs to be now really, really managed and regulated? Only start, right? I mean, that's been happening even before. I mean, unfortunately, and it's just shocking to me how we don't have regulation and minimum standards in the, in the country, right? I mean, whether it's for diagnostics, hospitals, for anything, at least hospitals have something. In diagnostics, for example, or for, for people making claims, uh, there's absolutely nothing. You can say anything you want and if you have some poor schmuck who believes you and willing to pay, that's your customer, right? Right? And that's how we see, I mean, we must be getting at least 100 everyday patients coming to us, you know, out of tens of thousands that come to us, but out at least 100 everyday coming to us saying, I went and did my test. I went to the doctor. The doctor threw the report saying this is complete garbage. Where did you go? And I have to do it again. And those patients are spending twice the amount of money. Their treatment is delayed. And these are not, you know, crazy affording patients. So the amount of cheating, scam, fraud that happens by people who have bad intent foils the healthcare industry. Because like I said, 90-95% actually have good intent and do their best, right? But the 5% bad apples really mess it up for everybody. And honestly, I think the government has to come forth and put minimum standards saying, that look we will basically regulate and put a standard that if you want to operate a lab what do you need to have in place what kind of infra what kind of machines what kind of doctors and who is supervising that you know honestly when I talk to even my friends who are very educated people and I tell them that there is no minimum standard in India for most of healthcare they are shocked most people believe couple that this is being watched and this is being covered and the reality is it's not you remember we also wanted to our industry body we represented to Niti Aayog also and there were other priorities for them to reach the masses rather than engage the classes. So I guess the government priorities are also lagging behind on how to regulate the industry and bring this trust deficit uh, that is widening between the masses and the industry even forward. No, actually, I think government's affordability are right. You know, I don't have any challenge with that. But as I often tell them when we deal with bureaucrats' MOH is that, look, having accessibility or good quality healthcare is fantastic. But if you don't know what you're making accessible, then you could be accomplice to a fraud, right? So it's very important that while we do accessibility and affordability, we put minimum standards at the same time. And I'll tell you, I don't even know whether, I think there's also, there can be intent. I think the challenge is they don't know how to execute because health is a state subject. And I think what they struggle with is that even if we put policies at the center, how do we get them adopted? Who will enforce? Who will go and do govern, etc.? It's a big problem to solve, but it's a problem that's solvable. And I think there's, what's very important is that besides putting draft policies, the same way they did for GST, where they created policies, they went about store states, they got their buy-in, they did horse trading, they did whatever they had to do to get states to, to agree. It was done in the interest of larger financial development for the country. And I think if we start seeing healthcare development as crucial as financial economic development, this can be done too. It just requires that, you know, that intent and rigor and determination to really get this to. You see, Amira, during COVID, we the telemedicine bill, the digitization stuff. At some point in time, even I wrote a blog and I talked to our, our industry body as well. Why don't you make healthcare concurrent? Because the vaccine cost was not borne by the state. It was funded by the center. It's time that we also look at ways where both the center and state start regulating healthcare. One. And second, how do we bring that 
that digitization at a national level like the Aadhaar for healthcare. How do you recommend that this can be done now? Because that's going to be the next challenge. We somehow got out of COVID, but the next level of digitization and moving forward to ensuring that information is available across and decisions are taken both on the patient and on the policy in the rightful manner. We look at other countries. Vietnam had a very interesting model pre-COVID, which is why they actually handled COVID very seamlessly. Their model was that they created these mini centers of infection control almost 30 years ago for their entire population. So in every neighborhood or community, there would be a, a local center of infection, which is not the same as the municipalities, is different. And the job of that center of infection is to actually monitor the neighborhood and the community for any infections people are having. So it could be a flu, it could be malaria, it could be dengue, it could be tuberculosis, you know, any of the infections people are having. And then to work with them to actually bring it under control and they did not spread. So they were so used to actually, you know, picking things early when they were in a nascent phase and shutting it down or helping you deal with it. That when actually COVID came about for Vietnam, it was like things they had already been doing for 30 years, right? And that was what made them very successful in their hand. I think in India, we need to create that kind of infrastructure that rather than the government being in the constant provision of health, government taking all that infrastructure and investing in the governance of health. You know, with 1.3 billion people, you need strong governance and technology and digitization can play an amazing role, but it cannot work alone. You need people because healthcare is about people. So combining, you know, using that infrastructure to do governance and saying my job is to put policies, my job is to is to prevent, my job is when something happens is to cut it early and not let it spread, and to help put policies for encasting in sort of encouraging investment for doing the provision of health. That would be my dream for it because I don't see any other way that a government can provide healthcare for 1.3 billion people and I can't see a way that private can do it, even for such a large percentage of unaffording people. So it's going to have to be a redesign of healthcare and I believe that this government has the capability to do it if it becomes enough of an electoral support. I guess let's hope for 24 election. Healthcare comes to being one of the agendas for Modi ji and he promises another version of Ayushman Bharat. Moving on, I wanted to talk about the big tech that is coming in and they believe that they can solve all the problems of healthcare using information on the patient. Yes, we have moved. We are now in our fifth cycle of using information and information-based diagnostics to take better decisions and provide better decision support in curing and treating populations. And that's where the intent of our digital health mission and whatever was formed in our country had moved in. But in spite of our representation to the government and digital, uh, the draft coming in, nothing has moved. How do we accelerate that before, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks and the big tech guys, you know, start creating their own channels in India and start managing and taking the data away? government is very alert. They definitely want to build the infrastructure um, to keep Indian health data in India and not allow it to be used either as a pawn in global politics or for the profit making for any other entity. I think they are in the process of building the infrastructure required. Now, is the project going to happen on time? Is it going to deliver exactly? No technology project, I think, happens on time. <laughs> Nothing gets delivered exactly as per promise. But I see the intent being in the direction of understanding why this is so important. And also then going back to our earlier point of building this infra superhighway that allows you know public and private to engage with to use as a storage of data for consumers you know we talked a lot with MOH about patient charter and patient rights 
And that's a very important because, you know, we keep talking about healthcare from a provider perspective. We talk about it from a government perspective. But the person who's suffering is the patient. And really, what is the patient charter? What is the patient's rights when engaging with government or engaging with this? What about their data? Who controls it? Who can share it? Who can do what? And I think, you know, hopefully, again, in the next five, 10 years, India emerges as a country that values the patient rights. We have displayed it out there. People know what it is. And therefore, we have built the tools and infrastructure to then support it. If a patient goes to A hospital today and B hospital tomorrow and C doctor tomorrow and Metropolis Lab fourth day, their information is their information and they should be able to download it and nobody should be able to hold a ransom, you know, even if they go somewhere else. So so I really hope we move in that direction. Amira, one challenge I see from India, and I guess maybe because the way the governance of healthcare being a state subject in India, is that, you see, we were able to create a global scale Aadhaar, a global scale payment system, UPI. And I keep wondering why not in healthcare and health data. We are already, I mean, lagging behind three years. This happened pre-COVID or around COVID, but I don't see the movement. And I'm seeing a lot of noise with the Googles and, and all these wanting to take a part of our action in India, which is very dangerous given the way Amazon and all these guys have started to move into healthcare and thinking that, you know, they have all the panacea to solve the America's healthcare problems. We will see this stuff more in India also if the government doesn't want to create the infrastructure in technology and move fast. I think they're in the process of creating that Abhai, which I think they're expecting will become at this point optional. I hope at some point mandatory. At this point, they're considering that the Aadhaar may become Abha or they'll come out with a separate ID that will connect for healthcare. So it's like your unique ID number, health ID number. See, all of these things are doable. It all depends on how high up in the priority it is for the government to take, to pick up fights with states, to get them aligned, to do whatever's necessary to get it going. And, you know, the reality is it's not an easy job. Being in government, they have to choose their priorities. So we can only hope that healthcare does become the most important, significant priority for them, you know, we're already seeing it part of the top priorities, but it's, you know, I don't know whether it's still the top priority. You see, I was very surprised the way the vaccine model, the information linking it to Aadhaar and everything, and we could track that. And it happened very quickly, a matter of months. And we could give or deliver over 2 billion vaccines to our people, our own people. If there is a will, I feel that this could be created technologically. But I'm seeing that wants to even run it their own way, the way they demonstrated it even for our vaccine system. Yeah, you know, I I think couple for all of us, we always react to stimulus. You know, when something happens as an epidemic, our pace of movement is much faster than it is when there's a threat versus our action and agility when there's no threat. And that's just a reality, I think, of human beings, right? It's the fight or flee mechanism. And I think in COVID, we fought and we reacted and we were quick and agile. You know, maybe we're not working as quickly as we need to because there is no looming threat. And I agree, there needs to be a timeline set and a reverse engineering done to say that, look, we need to get this done by this date. Otherwise, you know, we do land to stand in a situation where we keep chugging along at our own pace and epidemics keep happening. We keep reacting to those in the short run, but the long-term agendas of the of the country, of the people's health doesn't get the top priority. And I, I do hope that that doesn't happen. I wanted to close this issue about our digital mission for healthcare. You know, different numbers have come in. It will unlock 200 million billion, 250 billion for India in reduction of healthcare costs and opening up our healthcare economy in the next 10 years. I'm sure this numbers came through some industry body and working in consultation with the government. How 
how true is this number is it scalable and reachable which number that 200 to 250 million the report that came out around the national digital health mission how this will enable and how this will expand our healthcare economy and our digital economy in this country i don't know the specific numbers in the report so i, I can't comment specifically on the numbers but what i can tell you is that in all my interaction you know with moh in the recent you know even few months i am seeing a new energy i am seeing and you know a new mindset starting from the minister himself down to the bureaucrats and the teams that work there is a mindset of solution finding problem solving there's a mindset of getting things done and not being stuck in too much talk and limitations are limitations obviously of bureaucracy but i am seeing that energy and i'm excited for what if it's channeled in the right direction what it can bring you know some of these projects are obviously not under moh some of them are under niti some of them are under nha so it's also split as a as agenda points right trying to look at some of the things which ministry of health is doing which is more operational and some of the more longer term technology changes are more under nha niti so and again there's you know good team there i mean there's arish sharma there who used to be running tray so you know you have a good team of people who know exactly what they're doing and therefore i think if we put the right people in the right roles then we hope to give them some time to get it done now that we talked about digitization only 5% of the medical data is been effectively globally and i'm not sure how much of that percentage is in india but if i were to see the basic building blocks of uh, you know even coding is not there like our icd and our drgs with shouldn't this be the first effort that the government needs to mandate that all right from your insurance to everywhere people need to be trained and people need to start coding things so that a better analytics and better information is captured and even stratified based on these codes yeah i think we need to have a more like every large institution there needs to be a short term mid term plan around what we need to accomplish and short term while we'll have you know troubleshooting we need to do or the the provision of healthcare for the below poverty line people i think having the bandwidth to still have a vision for middle you know for mid term and for long term and some of these things like you're saying are fundamental to that right you can't have an integrated system of healthcare connecting primary secondary and tertiary to the ecosystem of all health allied activities like diagnostics and like dialysis and and pharma and pharmacies and insurance unless everybody is on a digital platform that speak to each other data is being seen and managed in a similar way and there is a goal that we are all broadly working towards whether it is in terms of capacity in terms of people or machines or centers but as of now you know if you step back and see how healthcare functions in india is actually the center is not playing that role like it played economically and financially in the country of saying let me make this very long term plan for india to really take it forward sort of you know in a leap i think right now it's being left a lot to the states to say do the best you can because health is a state subject and i feel somewhere health is nobody's baby really you know and it is a lot of it is left to states and some of it is with center and both feel that they do their jobs right for what they're supposed to but having one owner who says i want to improve the health of this country and take it forward i think is something which i hope we can work towards because a lot of things otherwise slip in the cracks and gaps between the center and the state. you see amira i see this big danger the way this thing if it doesn't 
move in the right direction will be what happened in america every state had their own standards information standards they were using different systems and then obama and prior to that bill clinton had to then mandate interoperability standards and exchange of information if this doesn't happen now we stand the risk of going the way the american health information systems went and then it took another 5 years to you know integrate it nationally and get it things in a proper manner a lot of time a lot of money was spent in america i guess this is the only risk i feel that we need to now you know really now let it in a seamless direction before states start to jump and get their own information standards and and move ahead what do you say you know i'm not sure states are there yet you know i think again i saw orissa is- actually coming out with something so there is some oh, is charter yeah orissa okay. some forward looking states have starting to think about it post covid so that's there is movement that's definitely a risk people yeah. start on different roads and different paths yes and absolutely that's a risk and that means undoing then potentially a lot of what's already been done you know so ideally you do want you know the national health data mission to actually set out the standards and and there's been actually a lot of work done on that front right whether it's it was with swas um, you know coming together with them i think there's a lot of work done i don't know how much of it has been really implemented or really alignment has been got from states yet and maybe that's the gap that's there but i know centrally there's been a lot of work done on protocols and you know how it's, the data is going to be treated how it's going to be looked at how people are going to connect in a lot of work done great let me move forward to the future of innovation and delivery you know 2012 2013 when we were on the fiki committee and we talked about personalized healthcare and precision diagnostic right our things and what are you going to bet in the future now you know i think every 10 process of where the industries end up and uh, some things have gone much faster than we expected and unfortunately some much slower than we expect i think regulation and minimum standards somebody might tell me you've been talking about for 20 years so you know i'll have to cover my face and say <laughs> it still not happened <laughs> but but which is unfortunate but i think as far as you know science innovation i mean i think india is has done on the diagnostics front i mean today we offer in india you know like metropolis offers 4000 varieties of tests right pretty much you know all the tests that you get globally um so i think from an access standpoint india's there you know whether it's hospitals the latest technologies science r&d diagnostics i think we are there i think from an affordability perspective largely at least in diagnostics we are 100% there right prices have been only coming down not going up i think on hospitals you know people who are covered by insurance you're okay people who are not covered by insurance our pocket is where the issue is right it's la- it's still the biggest bankruptor in india today and right. that is a big problem i think as far as capacity building working in a clear blueprint direction i think is the part that i miss the most is that it feels like everybody is doing their own thing but everybody is like a little bit like a plucked chicken you know going in circles moving incrementally not moving purposefully towards a certain goal and you know every public or private sector has their own journey which doesn't necessarily convert uh, to me i would say that is still a miss from the past 10 years and something that i truly hope changes soon but you know on personalized healthcare or precision diagnostics precision diagnostics are here you know are we still doing everything based on genetic testing no you know affordability is a big challenge in india still insurance doesn't cover diagnostics at all it's all out of pocket yeah. uh, when it's outside the hospital and that does lead to challenges of doctors prescribing lesser tests because they don't want the patient to incur a big financial burden doctors also don't prescribe 
have a lot of specialized tests because they are worrying that you know too much for these people to afford. So I think somewhere the financial challenge has created the health. And if we are able to solve the affordability challenge, whether it's through trust or insurance or subsidies or government schemes or whatever it is, till that time, science is going to play the second priority to money. And that's just sad because at least my belief is, it's you know, I'm sort of between socialist and capitalist. My belief is that every individual believes the right, you know, deserves the right to health for a minimum standard. Uh, that cannot be compromised. You know, whether you're healthy or not, or you have access to healthcare cannot depend on whether you can afford it. You can then post that, have segmentation. You can say, look, I'll give you this level of expertise, or I'll give you this quality of bed, or I'll give you this quality of infrastructure. And there can be segmentation there, which leads back to the capitalist section. Because if you don't have profit make, how will you have innovation? Who will invest back for innovation? But the basic minimum health access that's denied today to a lot of individuals, I think is something that we all as a collective conscience need to really think through as to what that means and how would we feel if that happened to us. I want to know, and this is a question that keeps bugging me personally. I could re- you know, reverse my diabetes given that I had access to some cutting edge technology. When do you think diabetes could be fully curable? <laughs> how do I answer? <laughs> You know, you know. Firstly, what is curable? Second of all, which mode of healthcare do you follow? Are you a you know naturopath? Are you an allopath? Are you an Ayurvedic person who believes there are so many different routes? No, this is through understand. the precision like medicine. Allopathy. allopathy yeah. yeah, what so, we like, talked about at Fiki a couple of years yeah. back. So look, I mean, I I don't know the answer to that question, but what I do think is is something that we should all ponder about is that we look at healthcare in these silos, right? We've always looked at health going primary, secondary, tertiary, diagnostics, da 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 da, and the same way we look at allopathy, naturopathy, Ayurveda, you know, homeopathy, etc. in these silos. And honestly, it's like we sort of leave choices to people to decide, but we don't give them enough knowledge to choose. And really, to me, a successful healthcare system would be to bring these all together, whether it's primary to tertiary and allied services or all the different forms of healthcare that we believe can help us. And really look at the body in a more holistic and sickness in a more holistic way, where ideally you're moving from sickness to wellness. But even if you do fall sick, which we will, how do we deal with it? Otherwise, today I know people go to their doctors, they get medicine, then they go to their yoga teacher, yoga teacher says something, then they go to their homeopath, homeopath says, don't take this medicine, the doctor, allopathic doctor told you take this. And patients actually self-treat and make their own curated protocols on their own, right? They're not following any doctor. Actually, they become their own doctors mixing and matching medicines. They're titrating their own body to medicine rather than medicine getting titrated to their body. And without the knowledge, right? I mean, a homeopath tells you something after years of education studying homeopathy and you take bits and pieces of it and combine it with allopathy it ain't gonna work so <laughs> i want to bring up one sky fi reality that's going to hit the world okay wombs on rent or wombs available to create babies there's one startup called ectolife which has created world's first artificial womb facility are we going to see baby boomers now from these sort of facilities in future or china is going to have this facility to create those army clones to fight india and the world what is it it's a bit too dangerous for me how do you see this future I uh, I see it slightly different. I think all technologies are not bad or good, right? All technologies are just tools in our hand. It's the people behind them who are bad. And if you're somebody who wants to use, you know, wombs and, and artificial wombs to produce a line of soldiers who's going to go and fight 
and genetically be perfect and be you know managing your country accordingly or defending your country accordingly is one story or you say that there are people who can't have children or people who have significantly disabled children genetic disorders and can this be a solution for them it all depends on your lens and it all depends on your intent and the biggest question around healthcare is really about what is ethical and what's not ethical and that will always remain a subjective right based on the biases of the individuals that so in my mind i think we have to tread carefully we have to tread with caution but we should not be afraid of innovation that can help people as long as we can put some guardrail around what is acceptable as a society and what is not acceptable as a society so i'm not scared by it i'm actually encouraged that technology and science is moving forward but of course we need to tread with caution to make sure that the people behind the technology use it as well. well said amira last few questions more like rapid fire because we are running out of time <laughs> it's been a very interesting dialogue with you and i'm sure we can go on and on you know this amrita vision 2047 vision we are all been working towards with all our industry bodies bcg fiki putting this charter together requested by the government and one of the things that i said is by 2047 i'm going to be a senior citizen and where is my facilities and my need for healthcare being created right now and that is where the challenge was what do you see about 2047 vision where we are going to have the amrit but no kal to live <laughs> Uh look I think the Amritpal vision the great thing about it is that it's it's very broad and very you know unique uh, and very clearly sort of states out and says for the next 25 years you know what we are working right and all good intents and good plans so I have no issue with any of those plans but I would wish that you know while they talk about the focus on all inclusive welfare obviously healthcare doesn't stand a chance in this current vision so it would be nice if obviously they added a very specific vision on healthcare because if we're not alive or we are struggling with our health then our economic development and our digital development and our private investment development may not have as much value so yeah health and education i i really wish they would make it a very big priority in amritkal one very quick question that bugs me and this is something we did a deep research during covid our team culled out a lot of data from various data sets and government reports and technology and is the gender parity for healthcare you see in spite of having so many schemes run for women and girl children in india the access to healthcare and the delivery of healthcare to women and the female population in india is still very twisted towards the male population and as a woman leader in healthcare what do you recommend how do we tilt this balance the future generations are going to be coming out of women women are going to produce they have their own issues yet access and delivery of healthcare is a big challenge for that cohort of population no actually and i think that it comes partly from the fundamental discriminations that exist in the country and globally it's not only an india challenge where this debunks do... that what we keep talking universal healthcare universal healthcare come on man you know half of your female population don't even have access or they're not been even able to access healthcare properly but universal healthcare is a goal it's not the current status what you are talking about is the current status. status quo right and why only healthcare i mean we know there's gender discrimination on all the other parts of india also right, right. in and, and globally as well right whether it's financial inequality whether it's healthcare access whether it's access to education whether it's access to justice these are all different and, and discriminated for women and health is one of them right and it comes from the fact of two things it comes from the fact that women often put themselves last well i'll say ourselves last in every decision making and that comes from our own within our own conditioning and second that 
where obviously the people around us who are making decisions, where there's not enough female reference, are making choices where women are put last, right, in terms of access. It's a lack of financial empowerment that allows them to make those decisions for themselves. So I think there are multiple problems to solve. I'm not going to claim to have all the answers to all of them. I think there's a lot of good work happening on all these areas. Are we progressing at the pace that we would like to 100%? Would we, can we do much more 100%? Yes. But do we have to stop and say, are we on the right track? Are we moving you know, at an adequate pace? And hopefully the answers to those questions are yes. I mean, if I look at the last 30, 40 years, maternal mortality has come down. All of those things have improved. And these are some statistics which, you know, in healthcare, at least we all keep talking about because it makes us feel good that we accomplished something. But hopefully 20 years later, when you and I have this conversation again, we can look back and say, hey, we, you know, there was this other stuff that was also accomplished along the way. So this is a fact of discrimination against women. I don't think there's any denying of it. What each of us can do, I think one thing is to say what the government can do. But I think what each of us can do is to try and ensure in our ecosystem that we are not in any way an accomplice to that injustice. Do our maids at home get access to decent health care? Do we take care of them when it's needed? Are we distinguishing between what benefits we give to the male staff versus to the female staff? Do we do that with our employees in our offices? So the reality is country is billions of small ecosystems and each of us controls multiple ecosystems. If each of us can fix our own ecosystem, then hopefully we all contribute to a greater. Second last question. What are you going to invest for? What are you betting and investing for the future of healthcare? So I'm definitely betting behind that. I mean, I think the tier two, tier three towns, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff. The doctors from metro cities are moving back to their hometowns and taking good quality healthcare there, which means if a treatment can happen in those markets, diagnostic needs to happen in those markets. So we're definitely betting behind tier two, tier three towns and then hopefully rural India. We're also betting behind staying on the global stage and adopting all the latest technologies and the latest ways of doing things and not denying India any kind of time. I think we're also betting on doing our bit as stakeholders and as good citizens to work with the government to find solutions to some of the questions and the things that we've discussed today. You know, as leaders in the industry, it's our job and our duty uh, and not an option uh, to keep plugging away at it. Um, and hopefully someday we all hit gold uh, and find these answers. And I think I'm also betting behind affordability. I think as volumes get larger, as more people do testing, we can continue to reduce the cost of at least specialized tests in India. Routine tests are superbly affordable in India, actually. Yeah, but specialized tests need to be brought uh, to make it more accessible. And that can only happen with volumes going up. I would sincerely hope that we, we have more indigenous medical technologies being produced in India because the reality is 70 to 80% of the stuff that we use is all important. And all of that comes at its own cost. As I started with your journey, I want to end up with your journey as well. What are you thinking of your future? My future couple will will has will always lie philanthropy and social impact. That was my training and my conditioning by my mother very early in my life, um, and and that is why I do what I do uh, is because it gives me a sense of purpose. And while I'm in the profit side of it right now and on the business side of it right now you know these things will evolve into moving to the non-profit and using the skills and you know expertise that I've built on this side of the table and hopefully moving it to the other side of the table sooner than later where I can spend my time and energy in building systems for capacity and for the country you know with no link to with any one institute so so hopefully that's the direction for me and and you know I've always believed that it's it's all of us and you started by saying how you, you're giving back a significant 
significant amount of what you own to causes that you're, you know, convinced with. And I think for each of us, and we don't all have to be millionaires and billionaires, but for each of us, we if we can take a part of what we have uh, and give back to society, I'm convinced that that's what we really need to build a great India. Uh, we can't keep waiting for the government to do all the things we think they should do, but we have to start with doing what we can. Amira, I'm really impressed with your last kind words. I do not know whether you are aware that we are putting up together $100 million digital impact fund for reaching the masses and the nook and cranny of this country. And it's already in the media. We are waiting some regulatory approvals to start that on. But I'd be more than happy to invite you onto our advisory board and our investment committee to align with our mission and your mission of moving this faster to every part and every person in India, the delivery of healthcare. With this, I'd like to thank you very much for your time, your energy and the passion with which you have spoken and talked to us on our podcast. Really appreciate and I will definitely reach out to you on what we have been working on our digital impact side of healthcare as well, where we want to really work and ensure the acceleration of digital health in this country as well. And it's only through, I think, talking and discussion and communication that we can all move forward. So very happy to be here and, and all the best with all this. Thank you so much, Amira. It's been a pleasure having you and talking to you. See you. Bye. See you. Bye.